Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting to speak at your event or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up a rather unusual interview with uh, Jim Pethokoukis, who has written a book called Conservative Futurism. And so as you can imagine, a lot of the interview revolved around whether or not that even makes sense. What, uh, you know, what does futurism have, have uh, to offer conservatives and vice versa? So what did you come away from the interview with? Was there anything that really leapt out at you as being especially insightful? I thought he did a good, good job of... Uh talking about how we we can do a much better job of unleashing the future uh, that there's much more potential that we can tap into rather than try to regulate the hell out of things and and minimize things that if we just let people be people that um, that we can actually have a much better future in store for all of us and that includes an economic future it includes an opportunity future uh energy food Healthcare, all of these things get better if we if we allow allow the best to come through, and that comes through technology. Yeah, we spend a lot of time on a theme that's come up a number of times uh, in the podcast, and that's where the optimism for the future has gone. Because if you look at literature from the turn of the century or the 1920s, it just seemed like people had this baseline belief that the future was going to be amazing, the human beings were going to act to bring it about, and that it was all going to be a journey very much worth making. And somewhere along the way, nobody's really sure exactly where, but the 60s, 70s, 80s, we began to lose that spirit, that belief that there was something better for us in tomorrow, and that it was worth working towards and worth achieving. And so we, we spent a lot of time on that, and hopefully interviews like this will be one entry in the addition of you know, optimistic visions for the future, optimistic ideas about what it's what we what we can work towards and what we can achieve. Yeah, it seemed like when uh, I don't know the news media figured out uh, if it bleeds, it leads, uh, and if we if we put a lot of negative headlines on, we sell more newspapers, we sell more advertising. Um, when they figured that out, then things started going downhill. And so I think we're we're at a definite turning point right now. I believe that um, I think people are tired of all the negative stuff. We're looking for something much better. And uh, I think he touched on it and did it in a nice way. Absolutely. And speaking of much better, here is our interview with Jim Pethokoukis. Tonight, we're joined by Jim Pethokoukis. Jim is a senior fellow and the DeWitt Wallace Chair at the American Enterprise Institute, where he analyzes U.S. economic policy, writes and edits the AE Ideas blog, and hosts AEI's Political Economy podcast. He is also a contributor to CNBC and writes the Faster Please newsletter on Substack. Mr. Pethokoukis is a 2002 Jeopardy champion and author of The Conservative Futurist, how to create the sci-fi world we were promised. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. 
Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's great. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. Well, my background, I, I work at a think tank, but my background is really uh, journalism, not academia. And, you know, so for a number of years, I worked at Investors uh, Business Daily, U.S. News and World Report, uh, the uh, Breaking Views, which is the, common, uh, the commentary wing for Reuters, before I landed at the American Enterprise uh, Institute. Um, but my whole life, I've really been interested in, I think, since a kid in, like, the, the future. And my sort of adult interest was, has really been on economic growth and tech progress and sort of public policy and how to create more of them. And it really, uh, to me, connects well uh, with sort of my uh, childhood interest and what tomorrow might bring, because I view those two things as being instrumental, you know, economic growth and tech progress, as creating uh, the kind of future that we might want to live in and solve big problems uh, here today. So when I was a kid growing up, I'd see the cover of Popular Science magazine. I'd see all the stuff coming out of Bell Labs, the stuff that was at the World's Fair, and I absolutely couldn't wait for the future to happen. Since that time, we've had all these reports about all this doom and gloom. And if you ask the average person on the street, what do they think about the future? They're, they're going to tell you about uh, we're overpopulating the world, that we've got uh, climate change problems, that sustainability problems, and death and disease and everything. And it's really created... Uh, a very dismal view of the future. I've always wanted to kind of make it my goal to make the future fun again. Um, is that is that something you would subscribe to as well? Yeah, I, uh, you know, pretty much my entire life has been spent in a period that the econom economists might call the great stagnation, the long stagnation. In my, in my book, Conservative Futurists, I call it the Great Downshift, a period where there certainly has been economic progress, technological progress. I'd rather live today than in 1975, but it's nothing like you know what I, what I imagined. Uh, for me, uh, the magazine I used to get at the house was Omni Magazine. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I think as a kid, there may have been things in there that weren't even appropriate, but my mother never really looked. Uh, but but between that and the books of Ray Bradbury and, and you know as well as some movies, I thought it like you know I thought it was going to be you know probably pretty amazing. I thought there might be problems because being kind of a seventies you know late seventies kid, I certainly knew about like the concerns about overpopulation, resource depletion, ice age back then. But I also kind of felt like we would solve those problems, and certainly by the time by the turn of the century, I mean the year two thousand. We would be on a the the launch pad toward a Star Trek future, no problem. And it was gonna it was gonna be maybe I didn't know exactly what it was gonna look like, but it was gonna be it was gonna be cool. And you're right, it was gonna be fun. Right, right, yeah. I always looked forward to um, the flying cars, looking forward to these jetpacks, these these flying belts, everything that you can imagine. It was all in the comic books. They were right there. And I was hoping that they would be on the back cover so I could just order one, but they never quite made it there. <laughs> X-ray glasses uh, 
Oh, oh yeah. But you know, it, but then I, you know, I thought that okay, then maybe by the time I was an adult, I realized things weren't moving quite as quickly. But then you know, uh, you know, in the in the late nineties, I thought, well, okay, finally, finally, it's it's happening. There seems to be this information technology revolution and people in Silicon Valley, I would, you know, excited. Now the magazine wasn't on the anymore. It was Wired Magazine. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, all right, here we go. This is going to be it. Uh, it's going to be, this is the period of acceleration and we're never going to slow down and we're going to be whoosh right into the 21st century, uh, you know, hell bent on finally creating, you know, again, I don't know if, it, I didn't know if it was going to be backpacks or flying cars or, or, or what exactly, but I thought now finally, a slight delay, but now here that but here we go. Uh, but then we that we then we decelerated again, which is kind of a bummer. What what do you think has driven all that? It's it's become fairly commonplace to note that we appear to be in this long stagnation or this great decline. It seems as though we're not setting our sights on the stars in the in the way that we did in the fifties and sixties, and that wasn't so very long ago. What's your diagnosis for the loss of that spirit of dynamism? And progress. Yeah, um, you know, it was what people should know is it both sort of the downshift, which which you can look at, you know, statistically. If you look at the economic productivity statistics, that downshift in the early seventies, and then again, sort of the, the you know, sort of that second downshift after the boomy nineties. Um, you know, I I think there were certainly like sort of these you know outside forces that we were always going to have to contend with, whether that was sort of having fully exploited like the the the, uh, the inventions of the second industrial revolution whether it's electrification or the chemicals industry or the internal combustion engine and and it just getting harder to come up with new big ideas i mean the the low hanging fruit a metaphor that we have now have to climb up higher on the tree and it takes more scientists and more resources uh, there's there's other reasons too. Some people some people blame it on the uh, uh, the, the 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 banning of LSD uh, back in the early seventies. Less less mind opening. Uh, We're not, not doing that, enough drugs. Right, right, right. That is that that is neither my official position or, or the, <laughs> the American Enterprise. Uh So I think there were things like these kind of macro factors we were going to have to to deal with. Uh, but you know, I don't think it was just that. I think. You know, I think our decisions mattered. And I think how we responded to that slowdown, even though it was very surprising and it took a while to figure out that it just wasn't like the oil shocks or the normal ups and ups and downs, that we just that our decisions mattered. How we, you know, our public policy mattered, how we responded to that slowdown, which I think was I think two I think two of the biggest things I have to be one. We began to regulate as if our regulations had no impact uh, on economic growth and innovation. There was an assumption that technological progress was such a powerful force that it would just kind of keep going. Now, some people didn't want that to happen, but I think generally there's a feeling that there was such momentum that, you know, you know, I think it was Nixon, Nixon said, perhaps apocryphally, it would take a genius to screw up the American economy. Uh, I think there was a feeling way back then that that it would take a genius to slow down economic growth and tech progress. I think that's one. Uh, and and listen, I would I I think it would have been super helpful that we had that after that if we weren't going to continue sort of the space race and that kind of funding for R and D and science, that we would have kept spending the money on some other big project or just in general. 
So we have, so we have, we regulated as if regulations didn't really weren't going to hurt progress, and then we quit doing something that, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whoever, you should agree is a basic function of of of, of your federal government, which is to spend money on science research, and uh, we need to do that again. I mean, I have all this, you know, these agenda items in the book, what we should do, but. but I think how we spent and how we innovated or, or how we regulated had a big role to play in how we responded to this perhaps inevitable slowdown. So Nixon actually said he um, proposed that we build a thousand nuclear power plants by the year 2000. And then um, it was actually just one movie that came along, the China syndrome, that just put a kibosh to um, all the further expansion of nuclear power plants. Um, so what what is that analogous to? I mean, you've, you've been living through this, and suddenly we went from a goal of having squanderable amounts of energy to now we just have miserly pieces of energy that we have to ration out to people. Right. Uh, yeah. The nuclear example is sort of the classic example where we had we had figured out something imagine if we imagine you know where like where that industry would be after 50 years of further research further refinement further innovation people you know people assume that like nuclear then that's what nuclear now would be had we fully embraced nuclear power no i it would have, it would have been 50 years uh, of progress so that is the classic example but it is obviously it is not, and you you mentioned the China syndrome, which is a great example. This is not just a 1970s kind of issue. I mean, we when when Chat GPT emerged last November, uh, I don't know if, I don't know about you, but the way I remember is that we had about you know 15 minutes of hearing about oh this is interesting and it's cool and you know it can make us more productive, and then it was. Oh, but it's also going to take all the jobs. And when it's done taking all the jobs, uh, it's probably going to murder us all. And that's been like the tone of the coverage. And in every story, the cultural touchstone has been often the Terminator. Because that, when you're, if you're a reporter, and you know my background is journalism, if you're trying to come up with a, a pop culture reference about AI or robots, what else do you have? I mean, what else do you, what is the first thing that's going to come to mind? And it's going to be the Terminator. And that, to me, shows sort of the power of the kind of culture that we've been soaking and marinating in for the ha past half century, which is one that uh, heck progress will not be progress as we have known it. It, it will actually make life worse. If we keep doing nuclear, eventually they're all going to explode and radiate the world. We keep doing AI. Eventually, it will come back and make our life worse. And you know, I, I know we can find examples of movies which don't take that, but they are far and few between. And the 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 thrust of our culture has been that negativity. What I wonder, like, why, boy, boy, you know, if we had all these big dreams, you know, at different periods, you know, right after the uh, World War II and right before the turn of the 20th century to the 21st century, like, why didn't we try harder? to like bring those dreams back. And I think the cultural support uh, foundation had utterly eroded. I mean, it's not like government did try to do things, but the kind of public outcry, like, hey, we're, 
know, where is our flying car? Where are our nuclear reactors? Where are our space colonies? It just wasn't there. I think we it, we we lost sort of the culture, the cultural, you know, uh, the cultural like superstructure uh, to really make that happen. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Well, so yeah. I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper into that because when I asked you earlier about the Great Stagnation, that's sort of what I was trying to get to. So I, you know, e- even granting that overregulation and a, a lack of public sector investment in foundational science might be the higher level cause for it, there has to be something deeper than that as well because I mean, those things are also driven by a prevailing cultural attitude by a prevailing framework or a philosophy. What do you think eroded that? Because it seems like that it's, it's the spirit that's gone now. It's, it's not just that there's not money. There's, there's billions of dollars and we're tr- trillions of dollars. And we're printing more all the time. Like it, it could be invested. It's just not. And, and I think that's because there's a deeper malaise, a, a deeper sense that either we can't accomplish great th- things or for some reason we shouldn't. Yeah. I th- one of the, um, Sort of one of the papers, a uh, great research paper I uh, I read maybe 2019, it was before the pandemic and really before I thought about writing this book, uh, was a paper by an economist at Yale, Ray Fair, who, who, who identified two interesting things. One, that right around the early 1970s, early 70s, uh, our, our overall spending on infrastructure as a country, as a share of GDP, began to decline. And he also noticed that we began to sort of lose control of our federal budget. And so those are two interesting facts. So how did he explain why those facts happened? He interpreted them as meaning we became less future-oriented as a country. Okay, so getting to your question, Trent, why did we become less future-oriented? And he, you know, he, he ran through everything, you know, like er, everything that had previously happened in the past 10 years, from, um, you know, the baby boomers entry, being entered the workforce to the Vietnam War to women's liberation, everything. He's like, I don't know. And like, I go, I don't know if that is a, that is a question we can possibly even answer. Um, I mean, I, I made my best shot at answering it. And I think, to me, the answer is that we became richer as a country. And when countries become richer, they begin to focus, you know, more on the downsides of economic growth and uh, the unintended consequences of tech progress. So I think that was always probably going to happen as we became richer. But then there are like a bunch of other things. I think the combination of uh, us learning more about like the harmful effects of radiation from as we learn more about uh, Hiroshima, uh, that we that we had you know books which took sort of these downsides of growth and really made them into like popular causes and really made it something everyone heard about books like, you know, Silent Spring. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, the Vietnam War actually played a huge role leading up to that period where these concerns about 
you know, what was what was what was government and industry? What were they putting in our water? What was what was really going to happen with these nuclear reactors? And we're going to pollute the world. And then they saw Vietnam seem to confirm all that, you know, that that we were, you know, Agent Orange and Napalm. And that was really no different than what we were putting into the rivers. And I think it all just congealed into an environmental movement that I think we're always going to have an environmental movement. But I think those factors created one which tend to focus on, you know what, technology is not something we can use to solve these problems. Technology is the problem. Progress is the problem. Economic growth is the problem. Consumption, um, techno-capitalism, if you want to call that. And they recommended retreat, retreat from all those things. And again, then he saw that really reflected in Hollywood film, uh, you know, include the China syndrome and you know, Soylent Green, and up up to up to this day, up to this day, where um, Hollywood films, which I think are, I think that's important. Our popular culture is important, mm-hmm. and that ethos remains. Yeah, so we we've learned that fear sells, and virtually every science fiction movie that was created uh, ended up getting put in the horror section because technology was the bad guy. Um, but I, I like what uh, Richard Feynman said. He said, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And we, we suddenly got to the point where we couldn't ask questions anymore. You couldn't question the authority of any of these people. And I think that's where everything got out of control. Um, re- recently, uh, Mark Andreessen uh, took this to task and he wrote the the Techno-Optimism Manifesto, and it's quite quite a detailed, uh, elaborate manifesto uh, coming down on the other side of that, that uh, it's, it's a voice that we haven't heard much in the past, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 years. Uh, do you have some comments on that? Yeah, uh, I mean, you, it used to be that you had, I think, a general... You know, that people thought we could solve problems coming out of World War II. Eventually, we figured out we could solve problems. Then we had sort of this negativity, and you had sort of the futurists of the 1960s. They they absorbed all the negativity, too. And so who and how then you had Hollywood absorb their negativity. So who was going to present like an optimistic vision of the future? It wasn't it wasn't going to be people who called themselves futurists for the most part, I I don't think. It wasn't going to be Hollywood, so so it was ended up being nobody. But I think now we have those people. I think a lot of those people are in Silicon Valley, and some you may not like the vision they're 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 positing. But I think the notion that we can use technology to solve problems and many of our biggest problems that are, are today result from not advancing technology. Would we have these debates about climate change if we had coast to coast? Nuclear fission, small nuclear fission, nuclear fusion reactors. No, it'd be it'd be an app. We'd still have, trust me, political debates. Uh, but may they be political debates uh, coming from abundance, not sort of a, uh, an artificial scarcity. So having somebody like Mark Andreessen, who is a cultural figure, someone who's on Time Magazine back in the '80s, who's a cultural figure as as much as as well as a technological and a financial figure, having more of these kinds of people saying, yes. We can do better. Uh, and every day we see companies, entrepreneurs trying to solve these problems. It isn't science fiction. 
It's what's actually happening. And you may not have heard about it. And gee, how many, how many of the average people on the street have heard about all the nuclear fusion startups? They utter, utterly unaware. Well, people in Silicon Valley are aware. So I think anyone who can sort of spread that message and begin to push back on really the uniform negativity that, listen, you know, I was on I, I was on a podcast and a producer was about in her mid-20s and I was talking about we can solve problems. Uh, you know, economic growth can benefit every, all this stuff. She's, and, and after the podcast, she said, she said, everything you just said, I've been told just the opposite. All my friends believe just the opposite. The world's going to be worse. It's going to be poorer. It's going to be hotter. It's going to be run by an oligarchy who will probably leave the earth and live in a space station while we suffer on the earth. You're saying something completely different. And I said, yes, I am saying something completely different. You are 100% correct. If if you were going to give a the, the most succinct possible pitch to maybe a 14-year-old who's trying to work out what they want to do in life and whether you know achievement is even possible and whether it's worth going after big goals, what would that look like? Well, uh, I have seven kids. I've had many conversations with 14-year-olds. <laughs> Uh, you know, in my life. And, uh, what I, what I've always told them is, you know, they say, they say like, you know, follow your passion. Well, I, I've sort of never told my kids that way. I, I said, I said, use what, use your, your abilities to create something valuable that the world, that the world sees as valuable. And if you do that, if you create something valuable, and I don't know what that thing is. Uh, you know what, then the world will probably be incrementally better off. And if you can go beyond incrementally, great. Uh, but that's how you should, that's how you should look at it. And everyone making the world incrementally better off and trying to, and not assuming that the status quo is as good as it's going to get and will pro and will probably be worse. Yeah. So then I, so I think that, I think that is one way to create a really better future and they should be optimistic about it. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's the message, uh, I've given him that's, and that, and listen, uh, I, I, so Elon Musk has become kind of this controversial figure because of Twitter. And I, I, I have no interest in Twitter Musk. Generally, I have a lot of interest in SpaceX Musk and Tesla Musk. Well, uh, I heard, I heard Elon uh, say in, in person that if you want to do something great with your life, there's no better place to do it than the United States of America. And that is the message I've also given my kids, whether they're 14 or 24, that if you want to do something great, and I'll let you define it, what that great thing is, this is the place to do it, and you can do it. Fantastic. Uh, so now that we're, what, 22 minutes in, let's uh, let's actually turn to the book that you've just written. Oh, it's called... Great. Yeah, no, this. I'm sure I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I will. I will. And I'm not just saying that um, it's called the conservative futurist, how to create the sci-fi world. We were promised. Yeah. I have a lot of questions about it. Uh, I thought first off we would begin with the title, right? So it's called the conservative futurist. And this is actually something I've sort of thought about on and off uh, over the years. Like I mean, is, is conservatism even compatible with futurism? This idea that we're going to learn from the past, but build into the future. So it's, it would strike, I think it would strike people as sort of an oxymoron on its face. So can we begin by just disentangling that potential objection? Like what, what does conservatism have to offer futurists and vice versa? Yeah, I, I think especially these days, 
uh, people would probably, a lot of people just define it as wanting to stop progress, keep the status quo, and then, and, and then look and look and live in the past. And val and maybe we all, too bad we all can't go back to 1964 and recreate our living arrangements back there and, and all this stuff. That's not really how I look at it. My sort of my version and what am I trying to conserve? What am I, what I'm trying to conserve is the best of our inheritance. And the inheritance, I think, is one of liberal democracy, personal freedom, market economic, economic freedom, and a society where it's possible that your life will be better than the life of your parents, what some people might call social mobility. That, that is the kind of conservatism that I'm talking about. And if you want to go back to conservative thinkers, somebody, you know, the people say like Edmund Burke, Edmund Burke has, there's a great quote I have in the book talking about the connection we have between, between past generations and future generations. And so I think we have an obligation and I, I feel, as I said, I, you know, I have a lot of kids, so I feel very personally an obligation to create the kind of environment today that is more likely to create one tomorrow where people have the resources and the wealth and the tools to, you know, uh, fulfill their own dream and that people around the world, not just risk country, the rich countries, can fulfill their own dream because that, you know, my kids, you know, the kids know I'm involved with economics. So what does that even mean? I'm like, well, I'll simplify it for you. This is what an economy does. All right. You were talking about capital labor. An economy is this mechanism which turns dreams into reality. It turns with the thoughts in your brain that then in the real world, it will rearrange atoms and matters. So those dreams become something real. Maybe that something real is a computer chip. Maybe it's a Tesla. I don't know what your dream is. But those, what, 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 uh, really a great physicist, economist in my book, uh, Cesar Hildago calls crystals of imagination. Hmm. So that's yeah. what that economy does. And if you have a really high functioning economy, those crystals of imagination are pretty spectacular. If you have a left, if you have a less well functioning economy, they're much simpler. So that that is so my conservatism is sort of enabling that process uh, of 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 trying to create that better future that I think we owe and build upon that foundation uh, for 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 future generations. So I'm not everybody not everybody would define uh, conservatism like that, but I think that essentially is, is is American conservatism up at least up until about you know 2015. So is conservative the wrong word? I mean, is there a better word? to use um uh, it seems conservative looks seems backward looking rather than forward looking um so is there a better word i i've been wrestling with that concept myself so i'm curious uh, well i you know i like uh, i like maybe it's the conservative it's the other kind of conservative in me i like the old words i don't want to change the words i have the same <laughs> i have the same conversation about capitalism I've had this, you know, what, what do we want to do? Let's change that word. You know, is it that really defined? Is that really say what we're trying? Maybe one of my favorite and uh, uh, a favorite economists and a, a friend, Deirdre McCloskey, uh, oh, yeah. she hates that word. And she calls it, maybe we should call it innovism or trade tested progress or something like that. Um, I, I, I agree that, that that word, you know, makes people think of uh, of the past. Hopefully, you know, maybe my my somewhat reimagining it uh, will 
we'll, we'll, we'll change that. But I like the uh, what the at least superficially the oxymoronic aspect to it uh, as the name of the book. But I'll be honest with you, in the book, I talk, I don't talk much about left wing or right wing. I talk about up wing, uh, which and if, whether you're on the left or right, if you think we can solve problems and, and technology is part of the answer and we have the wisdom and agency to create a better world, then whether you call yourself Democrat, Republican, whatever, uh, I, I think you're an upwing person as opposed to a downwing person who thinks, you know what, the best is not yet to come. It's only going to get worse. And if we try, we'll make it even worse still. Yeah, in the late in the late 1990s, a lot of people started calling themselves futurists. And then as soon as the, the first internet bubble burst uh, in 2000, then everybody um, started looking down on futurists. They they were saying the wrong thing, so that that became kind of a bad name, a bad title. So people quickly changed their title to change agent, <laughs> which is and, horrible. <laughs> yeah, which nobody knows what a change agent is. And uh, so I I just kept the name futurist the whole time. Um, but there's there's been a lot of experimenting with the titles and terms like this in the past. So. It, it, you're probably right to stick with, with what works and what people understand. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's important that you that you try to connect with people and create like the right kind of, you know, image. Uh, but I'm not willing to give up. I'm not willing to give up the word conservative. I mean, I work in what is considered to be a conservative think tank. And but I think even more the concern is the futurist part. I mean, there are futurists who, and you can tell me about that, who, uh, and and the one I talk a lot about in the book is Her Herman Kahn, who do a lot of scenario planning and look at the big trends. And I guess there's some of that in the book. But what what my own skill set is like, I I can't tell you which of the, you know, which large language model is going to be the best one in five years. And I, I maybe I have some of that in the book where I try to give you hints of that. But what I care about is making sure we have an environment where whoever wants to create or improve these large language models can do it and be rewarded and have the incentives to make them even better or create some other technology. So I think if we get, if we get like that, right, if we get like the environment and the ecology for growth and innovation, right. Uh, and we don't suffer terrible, bad luck, uh, that will probably be okay. So a lot of the book really focuses, uh, on that. Um, though I, I try to give somewhat of a, a hint of, of what tomorrow is, but you know, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know exactly what the ideal tomorrow is. I don't think we should have a department of the future, you know, a <laughs> bunch of people, you know, with a bunch, you know, flat screens everywhere, using gestures to move things around, five-year plan, 10-year plan, 15. Like that, I don't think is going to work. Uh, I, I, I believe it's going to be far more organic where we give people tools and then more bottoms up. We create, uh, I hope, um, the kind of future that, uh, you know, that people like, yeah, things are working out. I, you know, I, t you know, today's better than yesterday. And I think tomorrow will be better still. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. I wanted to ask about any thoughts you had concerning the relationship between technological and social progress. So 
I buy your basic sketch of American conservatism, but I think there are other pillars of conservatism, especially today, the Ben Shapiro brand of conservatism is what I have in mind, which are focused on things like religion and being tied to a community and the nuclear family. And it occurs to me that those things don't necessarily have to be pitted against technology, but technology often erodes them or makes them less live options in people's minds. And just the example I have is now that it's so much easier to move and we're so much more mobile, there's less need to live where your parents lived. And people famously have fewer children as they become more affluent. And so it seems as though there's not necessarily an essential tension between technological progress and maintaining the social structures that conservatives want to conserve. But there is some there. And I wonder if you've given any thought to that, if maybe there's a way of preserving the best parts of the past in the social media age, in the artificial intelligence age going forward, or if that's just not particularly something you concern yourself with. I think I think in a world where where we are not growing, where, where the economy appears stagnant to people, where it doesn't seem like their life is getting better. Uh, I that I think that is a world where uh, we begin to see lots of problems, lots of dissatisfaction. We wonder, uh, we wonder what you know, what kind of world we're creating for our kids. That is what I that is what I'm concerned about. Uh, I, I I look at the problems we've had since the global financial crisis. And uh, we have, you know, the, the rise of what maybe a nastier breed of politics. Uh, that is what we get from an extended period where life does not seem to be getting better and people don't feel like they're being rewarded for their efforts. I like, you know, if you go back to the 90s, uh, it was a period of, you know, rising in income inequality, big, you know, jump in income inequality. But it was also a period of rising wages. And we had uh, this productivity-led boom. Uh, it was really a all boats are rising period, and people didn't care so much about like the the inequality of it. I I think if people do not think that the disruption that is going to be caused by change, especially if they have not experienced like in their adult lives like a really kind of boomy time, and you'd say like here I, that. We're creating this. There's going to be this new technology. It's called AI, and it's going to accelerate the economy. Pooper. All they're going to hear or think is that sounds like disruption, and that's going to make my life worse. I have no recollection of it making my life better. Uh, it's going to make my family worse. I want no part of it because they haven't experienced it. So I think people experiencing, uh, experiencing an economic boom and growth and their wages rising and their kids being able to get a job and then being able to get another job, no problem, that environment. We have not experienced that a lot lately. So I think a lot of the concerns about about the disruption are due to the fact that people just don't think it's going to be worth it because they have they don't have in their immediate memories a time when it was worth it. And if they haven't experienced it, and we're creating a culture that provides no image, positive image of what that will be like, it doesn't surprise me that people tend to just be focused on it's it's going to um, it's going to disrupt their community. It's going to disrupt this local factory. I won't have this one job for the next forty. All the sort of the da that downwing, what I call downwing thinking, began. I mean, there's a bit of downwing and upwing in all of us. 
And that downward thinking, that fear and the anxiety, uh, I think takes precedence. So I think it's really important one that we have we have policies that are you know that I think are pro growth and pro progress and show people that they work, and have a culture that reinforces uh, what I think is that truth that that we can make the world a better place. And you know what, uh, you may have to move, but you know what. We're going to be in a better world. Your kids will have more opportunity. You'll be able to fly back home as much as you want or or, or what have you. People just, I think, don't, at a gut level, just don't think it's going to be worth it. And they're, and they're super, super skeptical about whatever technology you want to talk about or people promising faster economic growth. Yeah, it's it's uh, been said that before the time of Gutenberg that the people – at that in that time lived and died within 20 miles of where they were born and the reason for that was is they didn't have any reliable maps to work with um gutenberg tempted to change all that um in just a few years he sold just a, a half million books well he didn't sell them this johann Fuss did but we actually know very little about gutenberg but but you ratchet that uh, level of awareness forward. And the big thing that we have with the internet today is such a heightened level of awareness about things happening literally all over the world that um, that we, we can know things that happened um, 10 minutes ago in Mexico City or in Argentina or Australia or even in Mumbai, India. Um, that level of awareness is giving us a different perspective than people had um, even even 10 years ago uh, as the volume of information that we have keeps coming in. So personally, I can scan through a, a, a thousand headlines in a day. I could do that fairly easily today. Um, now, when John Nesbitt was around, he would actually go through all the headlines and actually chart out the trends based on the headlines of newspapers. But he'd have to have all of these newspapers delivered to his office and then go through all of these things. That was really a laborious task. <laughs> Nowadays, it's so much easier. <laughs> you, you may be going through those thousand headlines even as we speak. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that... That level of awareness, I think, gives us such a different perspective than people had uh, even a few years ago. So how do you think awareness factors into all of this changing environment that we're moving into? Well, certainly some people have pointed out the fact that we don't move as much as we used to. And that's a, that's a sign, sort of a societal complacency. Certainly one way you could explain that is, you know, we can get, we have a much, we have a much better view of what that place will be like that not only do we have a lot more information but you can you can you can look at you can you can look at apartments and you can look at the neighborhoods around those apartments and you you get a good sense of what it might be like to live in those places uh i hope that the that the awareness does not and i and i and i sometimes i fear this is my fear that that awareness uh makes people fearful of the future that that the tendency and i think the tendency of our media and it's it's very natural to focus on the negative there's a greater awareness 
of the negative. You know, the, the, you know when they say the parents, you know, parents are, uh, you know, are, are helicopter parents. They don't let their kids ride around on bikes, you know, all around the neighborhood. Well, well, if 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 all you if you can just pick up a page and hear about a you know a murder here, a kid kidnapped here, it seems like it's happening all around you. Well, no. It's just that now those are easy, easily covered and you can have video and, and interviews with the parents. And it seems like it's just it's happening everywhere you look and it, it's not happening everywhere you look. So that I worry reinforces sort of our natural inclination. And you have, you know, you know behavioral is uh, behavioral psychologists, and behavioral economists, you know, identify all these, as you know, all these sort of cognitive biases we have toward valuing or we feel losses more than we than more than we feel gains and a and a, and a bias towards status quo thinking and anchoring in the past that that awareness reinforces sort of that status quo thinking so i do worry about that and then if you have a culture which is presenting you further images you know maybe fanciful images of everything that can go wrong and we you know will go wrong uh that reinforces it and if you look around your life and you're like you know uh, you know maybe life's a little bit better than it was 10 years 20 years ago but i don't think it's really getting very better very quickly and i can easily see how it could get worse i think that is just a doom loop of of bad stories bad policy bad results and uh and maybe a heightened awareness of all of the above yeah, but we can't have awareness. Well, so I'm guessing you've probably thought about it more deeply than I have. Yeah, we we can't have awareness of the good things happening around the world too. Uh, I think not. Unfortunately, unfortunately, you know they they you know the headlines of the, the the news headlines are you know plane land safely the old the old joke it's <laughs> it's plane crashes you know. Yeah, yeah, I've often I've often thought about that. It's like, would there even be a market if you just had like the optimist beacon weekly newspaper where you're just like, and in the Sudan, 5 million people took their garbage out and paid their taxes and the lights were on and they had no problems at all. And they took their kids into bed safely at night and nobody was murdered. You know, like would there, would there even be a market well, for people like believe that? it? Trent, well, people believe that. I, Oh, I'll tell you, uh, it's a great website. Our world, our world and data has great oh, yeah. charts. And many of those charts show the, uh, it, and I, I like, I'll put up a world and data chart, just a, you know, very basic one showing that, you know, the huge increase in human uh, in human prosperity, human income over the past, you know, 200, you know, 250 years. And I'm like, hey, you looking for some good news? Here's some good news. And people are like, oh, well, no, you're not you, you, you're not adjusting for inflation, right? Does that include that? Like, they don't want to hear it. I think you have a lot of people so invested in catastrophe that they that they don't even want to. They're like, oh, it's probably even better to live back in the 1600s. You know, you didn't have to worry about you know, so I so I worry how deep the rot is that he went presented with very clear to me, like obvious good news that many people are sort of reluctant to accept it. And, and, and I hope that I hope my book can make people somewhat more willing. And my newsletter called Faster Plea will make people somewhat more willing. And as I tell my kids, you know, maybe make things incrementally, you know, incrementally better. You know, if I could do that, then it's, I've had a success. <laughs> Well, you've taken the most important step, appearing on the Futurati podcast. So it's it's all uh, uphill from here. Giant leap. That's a leap. That's not a that is a huge leap forward. Faster, please, indeed. Um, I, I wanted to ask you what makes you hopeful. So you've you've beat this drum of progress throughout the interview. I wonder if there are any areas you've looked into that seem just an especially bright ray of hope. 
uh, whether that's nuclear power or crypto or whatever, what, what really just quickens your pulse and makes you think, uh, there's, there's hope after all. You know, I, you know, like I think a lot of people have books coming out this time. We probably started writing them, you know, in the summer of 2020, a little extra time on our hands, back commuting. Um, and since I started writing that book, I was already, I, I thought there was sort of enough out there. I think let's, you know, in, in the world of technology that I was kind of hoping that we might be in heading toward a period where you'd really get a cluster, uh, a cluster, an important cluster of innovations some of which would, you know, kind of feed off each other. Uh, and then it all kind of started happening uh, where we, we know there was good news about CRISPR. And then uh, the worst of the pandemic, there was good news uh, about vaccine technology. And then the good news about machine learning became good news about generative AI and SpaceX and good news about, you know, maybe advances in nuclear and I, so all those that are coming together and certainly AI as a general purpose technology could help sort of all of the above. So the fact that we have this cluster of innovations, I'm, makes me enthusiastic. But then like, what about the, the, the sort of tailwinds that will help that process along? Uh, I, 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 I think that sort of this nuclear renaissance that we're seeing across Europe, uh, even in the even in the United States, where you have an administration which seems to at least be neutral, if not pro nuclear, uh, I think we've learned a lesson here about ha about what happens when you don't have access to energy. My gosh, if Japan can reopen a reactor after Fuku just ten years after Fukushima, uh, I think there's hope for us all. And if we and, and I think you know it's kind of nuclear's a bit of a gateway drug. That if we if we can actually have a nuclear renaissance, people are going to look around and say, "Why didn't we have it 50 years ago? Like, why didn't we do that? And why are we still worrying about, you know, climate change?" And and the same people who said we shouldn't have nuclear are now saying we can't have AI because it uses too much energy. Whoa, whoa, that's the problem. Lack of energy. Like we know how to deal with that. So I think this nuclear renaissance is a big plus. I like that. I'm center right. I love that we have some of my friends on the center left are thinking very hard now about the way regulation has made it difficult to build the real build in the real world. Uh, that's a great, you know, I, I'll take I'll take my help. I, my my friends like Ezra Klein and Derek Thompson at Atlantic. If we can you know, create kind of this bipartisan upwing movement, uh, that's great, too. Um, so I think there are some I think there are some tailwinds. That will help this progress and help the and, and help the culture. I have, you know, with AI, we don't have to wait for Hollywood to figure it out. People are going to start creating their own movies and their own images of the future that will look highly sophisticated. And there's a lot of you know young technologists out there beginning to do that. And I think that matters too, being able to create those images ourselves. It'd be great if Hollywood did it more, but until they do, we can do it. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers, able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. So in this age of the writers striking in Hollywood, uh, I'd like you to make a prediction. What What is the year when robot comedians become funnier than human comedians 
Uh, I think will we let ourselves laugh at the robot comedian, or will we have it? Or we want will we want human artisanal comedy? <laughs> Free range comedy. No. Yeah, we want we yeah yeah that you know that for that you can get the you can get the robot comedy for a low price. But if you really want the artisanal deluxe bespoke comedy, that's what a human provides. <laughs> okay, what year is that? Uh I think these are. I'm, I'm listen. I think that I'm a faster plea. I I I, I'm, I'm, I I think I think year 2030. When we look at the back at the year 2030 versus 2023, you know, it's tough to make predictions, particularly about the future. But I think that we'll say like, yeah, this was this was a moment, and things are changing, and it'll be palpable, and it'll be obvious that okay. we are on a track. Well, there you go. Twenty thirty. I don't know. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, it's real interesting that we had all these uh, series of predictions about twenty twenty, and then twenty twenty came, and then we had COVID, and that all the predictions just got lost in the in the clutter. Um, so now. We have 2030 coming. We have a lot of good stuff that we're anticipating. So, <laughs> we'll, we'll look at the betting markets. Where the I'm not. If, if there's is there a contract on, on on robot comedians? I don't know. I know there's a lot on, on fusion <laughs> and Mars colonization and AGI. Oh, well, we'll have to set one up. Yeah, the AGI ones are are very interesting. Uh, are there any final thoughts that you want to leave the Futurati audience with? Yeah. Um, in the book, the, the futurist, I, I, as a conservative futurist, is this guy, Herman Kahn, who went from nuclear war theorist to very sunny techno-capitalism, can create a better future, and by 20, the year 2000, will be a master of the solar system. And he and he said something, and when he died in 83, Ray, Ronald Reagan called him a futurist who embraced the future, did not fear the future, so I don't fear the future. But he said, and this is probably a real conservative thing, he said, look, if we just make a few good decisions and don't have a bunch of terrible luck, we'll be okay. And I think that's still true. If we have a little bit of luck, we don't get a comet smashing into the earth before we figure out how to deflect them. And we can just make a few more good decisions. Think a little bit harder about the impact of uh, of government policy on the ability to innovate and to do research and just begin to move a little bit more in that direction. I really think, given I, what I hope is a cluster of important technologies, uh, you know, this, this this could really be a, a turning point, inflection point decade. Well, fantastic. I, I like that message, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, Trent, Thomas, very much appreciated. I very much enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much. This is great. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>